we originally met each other uh, at Evans Lane, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which is funny to me. Evans Lane is funny to me because I always called it, I don't know how many people agree with this, but the halfway house for the criminally insane. Uh, now, not everyone fits under that. I'm talking about myself, all right? I'm not talking about any other residents there. When I, would I make that joke? Um, but it is a funny place to meet people, right? Yeah. So, and it's something to point out early on in the conversation. Um, but also, you you occupied uh, a different space that I never had direct experience with, um, and that's really what Evans Lane was designed for. Uh, so I wanted to, you know maybe get some of your expertise. I'm not sure if that's how you look at it, but uh, get some bits of your experience that ultimately led to you ending up in the same place that I ended up. Yeah. Right. So, and that is addiction, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, how long, first of all, you're clean now. Yeah. I've been clean since uh, November 8th. Okay. November 8th. And is this your first attempt uh, no, I've been trying to stay clean since I was like 18. Yeah. So for 20 years, I've been, I've had, you know, up to five years clean and I've had three and a half years clean and I've had a year clean. And um, generally since I got in trouble and I ended up on probation, um, I was just smoking weed for a long time. Yeah. Um, so I didn't give that up right away. Um, and then when I quit smoking the weed... Um, I tended to want to drink more hmm. and, um, and then when those two didn't, didn't work anymore, then I would glamorize the meth and think that that was going to do something for me. And, you know, luckily my last couple relapses, I, I didn't do much and it was enough to kind of wake me up and realize that it was mostly in my head of what I thought it was going to be like. It didn't turn out to be that way. So, hmm. Wow. When did you, uh, this is very confusing for a lot of people to understand, especially outside of the San Jose area, because I heard it's, there's a lot around here, but how, when did you first get into, uh, doing any drugs without any saying any specifics? Um, I went to a continuation middle school and, um, there's a lot of troubled kids at the school and we got in trouble for smoking cigarettes on campus. And instead of sending me home to my house, since my mom wasn't there, they sent me home with the kid that I got in trouble with. And um, I was about maybe 13, 14. And when we got to his house, his brother was rolling up some weed and I had never seen it before or tried it. That was the first time I ever did it. That was the first time I ever used anything or drank anything or, Hmm. you know. So it was smoking cigarettes or was it uh, doing something else with cigarettes that got you in trouble? I'm sorry. I, uh. Yeah, I was smoking cigarettes smoking on, the cigarettes. on okay. campus at school. And then it went to weed because you were introduced to that yeah. by your brothers or by your partner in crime's older brother. Yeah. And then from weed, a lot of people don't see how you could ever get into the harder drugs like heroin or meth. But for you, how did that play out? Um, I went back into a town where I had known people. It was up in Grass Valley. And... um basically all my friends that I used to just smoke weed with had kind of moved or had kids and jobs and they wasn't quite the same situation as before. Yeah. Uh, staying with a friend and he had some people over at his house that were meth heads. And, um, basically I remember not knowing what it was and, um, I don't remember how I used it the first time I used it. Um, but yeah, and I got pretty hooked on it pretty quick. So just being around people who were using was yeah. a big part of what got you into it. Yeah. Did you have any interest in using meth before you no. were around anyone? Huh. Yeah, what's wild about that is <clears throat> it seems that for a lot of people, for a lot of these things that maybe an outsider would consider destructive, what's interesting about it is the people who introduce you to it often are people that you trusted on some level. Or admired on some level. Is that accurate or um, no? They weren't really trustworthy people. They were kind of um, troubled people, um, you know, in, in and out of jail 
Um, I didn't know this at the time, but uh, I just remember um, being in a shock with them. And I can't remember if we smoked it or I'm pretty sure we smoked it, but um, I don't remember the initial high, you know, Um, I just remember weeks later um, continuing to do it. And I remember that might come down and, um, a lot of bad stuff that happened around it. Yeah. So I've heard a lot of bad things about that come down too, especially when compared to other drugs. But actually one guy in jail told me, um, his story of eventually getting into meth was basically that he just loved Coke. Now just love Coke is an understatement, but he, he loved cocaine. And then, uh, someone, told him, hey, this is like better than cocaine. You're high for longer and it's cheaper. And the only downside he saw was that uh, the come down was worse and you couldn't snort it for whatever reason. I don't know if either of those are accurate. But what was interesting about his story was that given these already kind of wild assumptions, you're already doing coke, for instance, right? Or you're already uh, in in this weird situation that you were in where – you're suspended from school for cigarettes, but you have to go home with the same person who uh, was in trouble with you instead of going home to your own, whatever, right? That you could kind of make these quasi-pseudo-rational decisions and arrive there. Um, but the thing with drugs that stands out is like it's difficult to it's difficult to trek a, a a rational path from like okay um everything's fine to like now i need something else to make me feel fine if you skip over these points of like who was in the environment what was going on in this person's life outside of just the fact that they were using drugs and i think that's one of the things that um the recovery programs that I've seen help people progress emphasize is like your whole environment is really something you should be paying attention to, not just this one thing. See, I grew up in a clean and sober environment. My parents both have like 30 plus years clean. So um, like drugs and alcohol were never in my home. Yeah. But they, a lot of times they would help people and bring them back to our house. And the influence of drugs and alcohol was there because of the people they were trying to help. So, like, the first time I drank was um, with people that were from AA that were newcomers, hmm. you know? So, that was kind of a weird, weird thing. It kind of made it hard for me to really want what AA has to offer because my first experience with AA was that I drank with people from AA, you know? So Yeah. But they weren't really members. They were just newcomers. So, yeah. What's the difference? Uh-huh. A member is you're a member if you say you're a member, but usually a member is somebody who's um more involved in AA than just showing up at meetings. Like they usually have a commitment at a meeting or have been going for a number of years, have sponsees, they're working steps, hmm. stuff like that. That that usually entails that they're a member. But you're really a member when you say you're a member. Yeah. One thing about recovery, too, is you mentioned this earlier. It is it the typical case that people have to attempt recovery several times, or is it more common that someone tries and then pretty much on their first try they achieve? That's different for different people. Like my first time getting clean, I stayed clean for almost five years, and I never thought I'd relapse. But as soon as I was moved away from my familiar environment, and in a new environment out of the state and um, didn't really have my support that I had when I was here. Um, it became easier. All it takes is one person to, you know, convince you or, or you to convince another person next thing you know, it's an everyday thing, you know? So that's what happened in college after I had a couple of years sober. Um, I just, the obsession never really goes away. I mean, the obsession does go away, but the, uh, you know, um, like they say, once an addict, always an addict that that's kind of true for me. Like, even though I had almost five years clean, um, all it took was a short amount of time of thinking about drinking and using. And next thing I know I made a plan, you know, 
Yeah. And once I had done it, it was pretty much too late to turn back. So, hmm. I mean, it wasn't too late to turn back, but it was difficult to stop once I started. Not because I was like physiologically addicted to it, but would you, it's just a mental mind frame, you know? Yeah. I imagine that it's a little bit easier. Uh, I think I might be stealing this from some movie, but I imagine that it's a, it's a little bit easier to have like one thing as your central concern for life, like getting this, that's, if I get it, I'll be good. If I don't get it, I won't be good versus yeah. worrying about managing a bunch of different things, which is a part of the trouble with recoveries. You have to relearn how to live just a normal life because you, in a way you were ignoring so many, so many things and you weren't managing so many things that it seems brand new. It seems like a rush of responsibility. Yeah, I'm kind of going through that a little bit right now where, um, you know, I get clean for 30 days or 60 days or whatever. And I realized that a lot of my energy was put into um, drinking and using to deal with my problems or to not deal with my problems. And then I get clean and all of a sudden I realize I have these, you know, I have a 12 year old son. I need to try to figure something out, but I, I have to be careful not to try to take on too much too quick you know, to give myself a break and not overwhelm myself. Yeah. How does your son feel about your recovery? I don't think he knows much about my recovery other than maybe what his mom's told him, but I'd, I'd be guessing. Um, he was too young to really um, know much about my addiction or anything. I kept it pretty far away from him. Like I never used in front of him and um, never uh, – I was just smoking weed at the time, but I would actually utilize the weed into taking care of him because I'd be, you know, I'd be like, oh, I have to spend time with my kid and I'd go smoke a, a bowl. And then all of a sudden I got into a five-year-old's mind frame, you know, and I was able to play with him and have fun with him. And so he, he never knew that I was using – but uh, I knew how I felt before I'd have to play with him and how I felt like I had to go smoke some weed to, to get into a five-year-old's mind frame, you know. And uh, it, that became a really everyday thing when he was with me. It was um, really difficult for me to spend time with him unless I was, you know, high. Um, I mean, as high as you can get from weed, but um, it just... Hey, to me, that's pretty high. Yeah. <laughs> the last time I smoked weed, I was in psychosis. And I thought that uh, when I was getting arrested, I didn't feel any tase, tasing. I was tased a couple of times. And my only, the only thing I wanted was to turn around and look at the officer. Uh, not because I had some kind of a weird, uh, you know, not for liberty or anything like that, for justice sake. But because I, I thought that the officer was a shapeshifter, like, you know, um, like X-Men. What's her name? I don't know her name. I don't know. <laughs> the blue chick. I thought the – I knew, I knew that the officer was that blue chick from X-Men. And I just wanted to – I just wanted to see her eyes so I could see those golden shape-shifting eyes. But that was off of weed and, you know, the most powerful drug, psychosis. But – um yeah, that's pretty high to me. I've never been meth high. I don't think I would even – I don't really like uppers. See, for me, like I never really – I became like a daily user with weed, so I never really got high. <laughs> Isn't that the funniest thing about – about just for a second I'm going to jump in – about drug culture in general is that on one hand, more use means more respect as, as far as like volume – but then on the other hand, you have the biological phenomena of tolerance. So in the, at the end of the day, the person who's using the most might be the person who's getting the least amount out of the experience because they might have the highest tolerance, especially if they're using the most on a regular basis. Yeah. I, I mean, I would smoke like a bowl every couple hours as soon as the high wore off, you know. So that was that's not too bad, a couple of hours. Yeah. I wasn't smoking all day, but – um I went through a good amount of weed, you know, I, I, this last relapse, I bought $90 worth of weed and smoked almost all of it in less than a week. 
you know, and I wasn't really getting high off of it. It wasn't really doing much for me. Um, but for you, was weed an addiction or was that just something on the side that ended up leading you toward uh, what seems like is a central addiction, which is meth? I mean, it's all pretty much the same. Like, oh, okay. Uh, okay. The extremes are different, you know, but I mean, I've, I've stolen for, for weed or to pay back the weed man. And I've, you know, basically like it can go both ways. Like I could look at it like it's, it wasn't really that bad compared to the meth or even compared to the, um, alcohol. Um, but I think there is a little bit of den denial about like, cause that's what kept me smoking weed for so long is I didn't think it was really that addictive. Yeah. But I mean, I would flip out if I didn't have weed, you know, hmm. and I would get it whatever way I needed to. Yeah. It seems like more of a lifestyle thing for you that, especially if you're already involved in stealing shit, then it's not that much of a shift to like steal for weed versus stealing for something else. If you've already done it, but it's hard to see how someone could get into that, that get that deep into the lifestyle off of weed alone. It's not that hard to see uh, someone who's already in it can continue while smoking weed. Yeah. Well, like what came with the weed was like a certain type of music and um, just the things I would do when I was high, you know, things be, seemed to be more tolerable when I was high. Um. I would still go to meetings. I would still go to church. I still hang out with my friends. But, um, you know, there was a time where it wasn't working and it was creating more anxiety than it was relieving and costing a lot of money. And, you know, but I did have times where I did enjoy it and it did relieve some of my anxiety and it did um, kind of give me something to do with a lot of free time. Uh, I just was more easily entertained when I was high. Yeah. So that's my biggest problem now is having a lot of free time before school starts and, um, you know, always feeling like I need to be doing something to stay productive. And so like I've been doing step work and I just finished my fourth step and, um, you know, I got to wait till my sponsor comes back into town to read my fifth step to him. But, um, I've just got a lot of free time and it doesn't take that much free time for me to think that it, like a shot of alcohol is going to feel good, you know? Yeah. Um, but I just have to play the tape all the way through and realize that like the last time I drank, um, the next time, you know, I needed more and, and it didn't do as much of a trick as making me feel good. And then the d depression kicked in and, uh, then I smoked some weed to, uh, deal with some anger and then paranoia kicked in about getting kicked out of my house. And I ended up homeless over, you know, weed and alcohol versus, um, in the past I would be able to keep my housing even though I was drinking and smoking. Yeah. But now I'm in a position where I'm out of clean and sober house and, um, you get tested for anything and you're positive you're out. Yeah. So, but for you, there's been a little bit of a shift. And I haven't even known you for that long. But I remember back at Evans Lane, there was a lot more resistance on your part that I'm not really seeing right now. I was smoking weed when I was at Evans Lane. Oh, yeah. That's probably why. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but you seem like you seem like you knew you knew that drugs had played a negative role in your life. But you felt like... Eh, like this isn't really for me, you know, this recovery shit isn't really for me. Whereas now it seems like almost the opposite where you're kind of driving your own recovery rather than somebody pulling you along. Cause Evans Lane, they honestly did try to pull you along with a lot of shit that, you know, wasn't for everybody. Yeah. When I, when I'm just smoking weed or drinking or smoking weed and drinking, in my mind, I have to justify it. So I tell myself I'm not doing meth. So it's okay, you know. Which um, is better. But for you, it's more of a lifestyle thing. So it yeah. will work. Yeah. I mean, it's healthier. That's for sure. Yeah. It's a weird world, man. Meth. It's, I've heard it's so common in San Jose. I don't know. It wasn't that hard for me to get. I actually relapsed in rehab. And, um, 
bought $70 worth of meth and did a line and stayed up all night stressing out. So it didn't really do much for me. And then the next day I did a little bit more so I wouldn't feel groggy during the day. And then I ended up giving it back to the guy. And um, I told on myself the next day and uh, they had asked me if I was the only one that was using and I said no. And um, they asked me, did you give anybody to anybody? And I said, yeah, I did. I gave some to my roommate. And they said, well, you can't be here anymore because of that. And um, I wasn't quite detoxed off of it. And I ended up uh, calling up a friend of mine that I, I no longer have his number. But um, basically, he knew where to get some. you know. And so I got another like 20, 30 bucks worth. And that was enough for a couple days. But I got to tell you, the come down is horrible. What it's, is it like? Try to describe it to an outsider. Um, it's like having the worst cold you've ever had. Your body just completely aches. Your head aches. Your um, real negative thinking, um, suicidal thinking, homicidal thinking. Um, you you want more of the drug to get rid of that feeling hmm. uh, because there is kind of a rush that comes with using it. And it, when you're coming down and you use meth, it, the come down goes away. So hmm. you feel better, you know, you don't feel as, um, irritated. There's a, an extreme amount of irritation that goes with it. And, um, like this verbal thing that happens where you have to verbalize everything that's in your mind. Really? Um, yeah. I've, I, okay. Uh, yeah. That probably, cause yeah, for a lot of uppers, I guess that's the case. Racing thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Usually it comes out of the mouth. I or you see a lot of people twitching and stuff that's part of it too. Um have this weird meth twitch. I never really had that, but um I just remember being really irritated and uh nothing was relieving the irritation. So, you know, I bought a bottle of liquor to help deal with the come down and then some weed later on. And, uh, weed usually helps with the come down off meth. It does, it does do a trick. Really? Yeah. It doesn't get rid of it 100%, but it, it does alleviate it does alleviate a lot of the stress of coming down. Well, that's the thing is stress. You know, at the bottom of it for a lot of people, using drugs has something to do with stress, even in the professional world. Even, I mean, in a way, drinking coffee is like that, right? Um, but the thing is, stress might be the result of a bunch of underlying components. So even if you can decrease the stress down to zero, if you're not addressing the underlying things that are causing it, then really you're just postponing it until, you know, until you sober up or till whatever happens. And I think that's one of the big things that, that I agree with in the recovery program. And we're going to get to this, but I don't agree with every. Every part of, you know, certain recovery programs. But I'm also an outsider. I've never had a hard drug addiction. So it's not built for me. Um, but yeah, you, you, even if, even if you had like, even if you're talking about something that's not addictive, like eating cookies, I guess, is, it's like pseudo addictive, right? If you say every time, uh, I get in a, a fight with my spouse, I'm going to eat a bunch of cookies. And it's going to release whatever in my brain and I'm going to feel better. But it's not a hard drug and it's not addictive. You're going to deal – you're dealing with the same like stress matrix, you know. Mm -hmm. You're dealing with the same pattern, which is that, well, yes, it may feel good, right? But you also can't ignore the fact that you are having a relationship problem. And yeah. there's a reason why you're having that relationship problem. And the cookies may make you feel better about the fact that you're having it, but you're still having it, right? And that's the big thing that that I agree with with a lot of these programs in AAA. Like people say, I use drugs to make my problems go away. Well, they didn't go away. It's just your perception changed so that you're not fully acknowledging them. And that happens even if you're not an addict. Everybody does that. Everybody is slightly delusional. Everybody makes decisions that aren't necessarily in their best interest and then find out down the line, I fucked up, right? Um, but the stress part to me is very interesting because I spend a lot of time thinking about things like that. What are the real problems 
and how can I address them? And almost never is the answer just purely changing my perception. Sometimes it is, right? Changing my perception. And that's basically what drugs do on a chemical level, is they change the way you perceive the world. But also, you can change the parameters that are leading to your stress too, right? You can address problems as they are, and they have that term, you know, life on life's terms. Yeah, um, not everybody uses drugs because of their problems. A lot of times they just like the way that it makes them feel. And that's my – it's a weird point to make in this context, but that's my second point, which is sometimes your only goal is to change your perception and there is no underlying problem, in which case drugs should be legal. You shouldn't be thrown in a cage for changing your perception, especially if you're not doing it to ignore any problem. Sometimes it can help you see deeper into a problem. Well, but it's a weird thing that we're talking about recovery, so I, don't, I hope we don't spend too much time on that. We have to realize only like 12% of the society uses drugs addictively, and there's yeah, you know, 85% of society that if they do use drugs, they they are normal. They don't have problems. They don't, it doesn't create problems. It's, right. It's a solution. But uh, there's 12% of the population that despite – uh, negative consequences they continue to use, you know? Yeah. Whether they had problems before or whether there's problems created because of using. And going to jail creates problems. Like, it creates problems. Like, you, the fact that you can't go to work the next day, the fact that you're now stuck in a cage with people who, some of which are still against society, some who are trying to change their lives right? That is a problem, right? That alone, even if you take a regular person and you just force them to live in jail for a week, that's going to have an effect on them. So the fact that you're taking someone, especially, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of black people specifically who, uh, who had a lot of drug charges and you can like go to prison for certain drug charges, um, where it doesn't even, it does, when you look at the details, it doesn't really make sense that something wrong was happening. But that's the way the society is set up. And that's and that's coming from, like, you know, you're currently dealing with addiction recovery and even you can see this logical point that I'm trying to make, mm -hmm. which is that even though for some people, right, like for me, I hope I never smoke weed again. I don't think I'm an addict, but I know that I'm bipolar and I know what can happen if I smoke and I'm in a manic state or I'm in a psychotic state. So I don't want to fuck around with it. But it doesn't mean I have to throw someone in a cage just because, you know, they're smoking a joint or something like that. Um, and it also doesn't mean that I have to ignore problems in my own life in order to advocate for this or to say that I'm someone who's different or greater than I am. I'm not, right? Mm -hmm. But it's just some people, it has this effect, others it doesn't. And for those who don't, you know, it's more of a basic responsibility question than a criminal question. Yeah, for me, smoking weed works, but it works so good that I don't want to stop. It probably works for some things, but not everything. It doesn't work all the time to like it. It doesn't. It's not the perfect miracle drug, but there's a reason why I continue to use it for so many years. You know, um, yeah. despite problems, I continue to use. Um, but just recently. Um, I got burnt out on smoking weed, man. I just burnt out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just got tired of it, dude. Cause it got old. I did everything I could do to try to continue smoking weed in Manley's court. And originally I had the 420 evaluations card and in court, he said, nice try. Now try getting a real card because it was so easy to get the 420 evaluations card. So I went to, uh, Lenzen to the, uh, city um, medical marijuana um, clinic and let them know what was going on. Let them know I was, you know, I'm in mental health drug court, but you know, they're giving me medications. It doesn't work. I smoke weed. It works, but it's violating my probation and it's keeping me in this bind and I need a real card in order to continue to be able to smoke weed. And that still didn't work. I went to Manly with the state of California medical marijuana card. And he said, Nope, not in drug court. And so, um, I had a problem with it at first. Um, I wasn't going to quit, but, um, I ended up getting a new probation officer and she's really strict. So 
the fear of going to jail, being homeless, um, was enough to straighten me out. So, wow. See, I've I've skated like I've relapsed and um, I should have gotten violated. You know, I should have violated. I should have maybe gone to jail for my some of my relapses, but um, I kind of knew that I needed to seek recovery, so I would you know continue to go to meetings and continue to do certain things that would keep me kind of out of trouble, but not quite out of trouble enough to graduate me from Manley's Court early. Like I see a lot of people graduating early a lot of those people aren't relapsing you know yeah so even though that's I've done, definitely a great way to uh send the message that you're ready is don't relapse yeah and a relapse makes it really hard to make the case that somebody is you know they're gonna be living what what's considered a productive life um because it's just you know how it is it's a slippery slope it's rough you know i'm sure that for you, there's probably people that you know. There's probably a lot of people that you know who are still stuck in some cycle that you've just recently broken free of. But, yeah, it's it's bad out there. Yeah, it's easy to see people that are more messed up than I am and think I'm not as bad as they are. But really, I have to look at, like, that I was pretty bad, you know, that I wasn't. How bad were you? What was what did you okay, look like so at your worst? The worst I got was uh, about 135 pounds. Um, couldn't see out of my left eye. It was completely black. Black um, is that a result of the meth? It what I just, happens? Or you got in a fight? My eye shut shut down. I I couldn't see out of my eye. Oh wow! Um, talking to myself, thinking that Satan was after me. Um, lashing out on people, breaking stuff, um, breaking, like kicking over, um, memorials, you know, on the, on the side of the street, on the side of the street, um, breaking crosses. Um, a lot of it was just anger and frustration of using, you know, it was bad. So that's about the worst it got. And I had fallen on my face, so my whole face was completely just covered in blood and, and scabs. And, you know, I'm still using and walking around Los Gatos, you know. Hmm. Well, at least you got that part. Uh, <laughs> at least you picked a nice city, right? I heard that's a pretty nice area. Yeah, it was all right. It was a safe place for me to go. There you go. A lot of churches and um, a lot of meetings. So no matter how bad it got, I always ended up at AA meeting or an NA meeting. Do you have a preference between those two? Um, I think I prefer AA because there's more success and more long-term sobriety. Well, um, alcohol is legal. So people are more likely to show up, right? And people don't hit as big of a bottom as in yeah. NA. You don't see... A, like, you know, a lot of people in NA, they may have some time clean, but you wouldn't know it by looking at them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's fucked up. And then there's that joke, uh, what has uh, three teeth and uh, what's 13 feet long and has three teeth? The front row of every NA meeting. Oh, <laughs> yeah, well, I actually, when I was at Evans Lane, I liked NA more than AA. Just because I like the wild stories. Because I got in there off of a psychotic break. So for me, it was closer to like an LSD experience than anything else. So to hear like more wild stories was more relatable to me than to hear like, yeah, I copped from this dealer or whatever. And this is how I would smoke. And this is how I'd be like, eh, you know, or drinking was the most boring to me at the time. Now I like AA just because, you know, the place where I go is AA. But um, I used to appreciate those NA stories just because they also they're true stories. Like it's better than watching a movie because this is someone sharing their heart basically about like them being at the bottom and coming up to this point where they can speak in front of you 
and appreciating every small bit of it for like, you know what? I'm not a millionaire, but I'm fucking here and I'm happy that I'm here. And it was genuine. And in AA and AA, both of them are genuine, but in NA, Edifin's <laughs> Lane, I just remember hearing some wild shit, uh, especially when I first got there, like right out of jail. I was like, yeah, I, I am in a county. I don't know anybody. And I'm here on probation for some felonies that happened when I was in a state of mind that I don't even fully understand yet. Um, I want to hear some wild shit. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to be sitting, I'm already forced to stay here. It's like a government facility, whatever. I wasn't in school yet. And, uh, I just felt like that was, it was way more comforting to hear extremes than it was to just hear people talking about their boring life because I couldn't really relate to it. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people get it confused too, that like meeting makers make it like you have to go to meetings and do step work in order to make it. That's completely false and um a and na meetings can turn into social clubs rather than actual recovery people will think oh i've gone to a meeting i'm in sobriety you know am i uh, i'm not using and i'm going to meetings that's enough and uh, and then there's people that think that um you know you have to do the steps all the time you know over and over and over for the rest of your life and there's different views, you know what I mean? Different people are have different experiences, have different levels of addiction. So some people may need to do more step work than others. And some people may be able to skate by just by going to meetings and not working with a sponsor. But I think the biggest key to doing steps isn't really so much for yourself. It's uh, helping other people. That's what my sponsor keeps talking, talking to me about is uh, get out of myself. It's not about me. It's about someone else trying to help somebody else. So I think seeing yourself as a part of a larger system helps because it can give you something to it can get, it's it's a different way of assigning meaning to your life than just like how do I feel? How do I feel? How do I feel? You know? That's a way of saying yeah, I'm my life is meaningful, right? But another way is to say I'm a part of this huge thing that I really do uh I think it's important. I honestly think it's important that this exists and I'm a part of it. So in a way, I'm important. <laughs> so really it is about me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think part of doing the steps and working with people and getting out of yourself is ego deflation. It's That's true. You know, ego's like the main issue. Um what do they say in the steps? Um selfishness, self being self-seeking, dishonesty, um, and, uh, I forget the other one insecurity. I can't remember that there's five main things that happen, um, uh, when people are addicts or alcoholics. Um, I have it written down. I just can't remember them all, but, uh, selfishness and self-seeking are the first two. And so, you know, being less selfish and trying to help others, um, being considerate of others and, um, I mean, that can become an addiction too. you know, helping people to the point where you don't help yourself, <laughs> but yeah. there's a balance to it. You know, there is a balance to it. Let yeah. me ask you this. What try to describe ego? What do you, how, what's your idea of ego based off of your experience, the things that you've seen, maybe it includes addiction, maybe not, but what is ego to you at least? Um, believing in a sense that you're God, not having room for uh, anything other than your own thoughts. Um, it's like a form of narcissism um, where everything has to benefit you. Everything has to be a gain. Um, you know, um, and uh, not leaving room for anything other than your own thoughts and basically uh, playing God, you know, yeah. Uh, I think I'll, I would add into that discounting or undervaluing indirect rewards. So even if something can be rewarding for you, but just it takes a longer period of time or it's not a cause and effect thing. It's more of a probabilistic relationship. So 
uh, if you're discounting those things and you're only considering the things where it's like, I see this one, you know, this means that uh, me, I benefit now. Uh, I think that's ego is, is, yeah. is the, the perspective that completely wipes out the kind of fuzzy logic that exists in our lives. Like relationships are like that, right? You, you don't necessarily form a relationship to get something out of someone, um, all the time, or maybe you shouldn't is, is what I'm saying. Maybe you do, but maybe you shouldn't. Um, sometimes it's more of, well, I don't know what's going to happen. I just, you know, whatever. I like this. So I'm just going to allow it to be, and maybe nothing benefits me, but maybe something does. I don't know. And I think that you can't have that kind of nuanced perspective on rewards if your ego is too big. If you're immediately looking for a payday, a payoff, a hit, a whatever. Uh, and that's hard to get over. Well, in AA, they talk about this thing called altruism, which is um, complete unselfish concern for the welfare of others. Yeah. And that's how you destroy ego is by, um, you know, concern for others, for the well-being of others, which is very hard to do when you live downtown San Jose and <laughs> you're packed with you know, people everywhere. You can't find anywhere to, I mean, we're lucky we got this room, but, um, <laughs> Hey, it's not New York. It's really, uh, I mean, it's not that densely packed or China, right? <laughs> it's not that bad, but I see what you're saying. Yeah. It is hard. Yeah. I mean, but the reality to me, what's beautiful about all of it is that the truth is really somewhere in between, you know, being completely selfless is not sustainable, but you can do things that are actually rewarding to you, but are not selfish. There is that middle ground. And I think most of what people do is in the middle ground, like holding open a door or something like that. Um, participating in a larger culture in a larger system that would exist whether you participated in it or not. But if you are in it, you get these benefits. And if you're not in it, you don't get them. Right. So, um, and, I mean, perhaps between the three of us, this has not been <laughs> our experience of this area, but we are in Silicon Valley. And it is a place where people who think about uh, systems and design, especially with digital technologies, um, uh, really do take seriously these questions that on some level apply to recovery. You know, it's not, nothing is really separate. Nothing is really that different from anything else, especially when you get into philosophy, especially when you're getting into what's the best way to live. Well, AA says this. They say, do these 12 steps and you will live a better life. The church says this. You know, the Quran says this. And everybody has their different rules. But what's funny looking at them is a lot of this is the same shit. Like you were saying, roughly speaking, you want to... Try to avoid living with too much ego. That's one step, right? Another is when it comes to stress, try to understand what's happening under underneath it all rather than just smashing it with, you know, whatever chemical you can put your fingers on. That's roughly a lot of different cultures say this, these similar things. Try to understand and try to be open so that you can grow when new information comes, you know? And... uh I mean, in my, I haven't gone through, in fact, I think I'll do this maybe before school starts, but the 12 steps, right? What are these 12 steps? Can they, is there any other way to translate what's going on in these 12 steps? Well, of course, you would never hear it in a meeting, but you can probably translate this into plain English into something that any, the average person would agree with. For instance, you should notice your shortcomings. That's something that I remember from these steps. Of course you should be reflective in your life. That's not unique to AA, right? That's just a general principle that a lot of different people have said over time and space. Um, but in this case, the format helps, you know, everybody knows what's going on, going through it works, especially if you're starting from a point where you're like coming off of the street like a lot of a lot of people who are at the worst of their worst in addiction are coming from, it helps to have a structure. But you, what you got to understand is anything can be broken into pieces and any pieces can be put back together to form something new. 
And uh, I think that applies to these 12 steps as well. And that, and because of that, there's a lot that I respect about it. But there are also some pieces that may, well, if you want to simplify, may be unnecessary. If you want to simplify the 12 steps, you can go back to the Washingtonians and the Oxford group. And they had the six tenants, uh -oh. which uh -oh. is basically like a shorter form of the 12 steps. Um, Why do you think 12 is, is special? And I don't know, maybe because of the 12 disciples. Oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. 12 months. There's a I lot mean, of shit that... There's a lot yeah. of things that people don't know about AA that if they knew the truth about it, they might not want to be involved in it. You know what I mean? There's some... Like what? Um, there's rumor that um, Bill Wilson was a womanizer, that he begged for alcohol on his deathbed <laughs> from his wife, you know? Hey, um, well, that at least the, he didn't use. <laughs> that's the success rate for Alcoholics Anonymous is somewhere around 2% of the people that go to AA actually get it. Well, that's an interesting thing to bring up, especially with a statistician in the room. Um, is is you, How would you measure the success rate of something like AA? You can't because it's an anonymous program and they don't have any way of validifying who's involved in the actual study exactly they do and they do some stuff every now and then some studies but uh not a regular thing plus um okay so a medical textbook is going to update itself every couple of years because they want to be on top of their game AA, AA wants to uh keep the same format as not from 1939 well <laughs> How can you expect a successful program if you're using the same format from 1939? Yeah, that was before Twitter <laughs> and a lot of things. Um, and also something that we mentioned makes it very messy, which is that people usually don't recover or let me not say that. Let me say this. There's a range, right, for how many times you attempt recovery versus like the actual final output. So if somebody attempts it 10 times in a year and then after that they're clean and sober the rest of their lives, is that going to be counted differently as someone attempting twice that year and then being clean and sober? You know what I mean? They're well, you get a lot of different opinions. Some people say relapse is a part of their recovery. Some people say it, relapse doesn't have to be a part of your recovery. Um, it's all different for different people, you know? Like I've had five years clean my first time getting clean i never thought i'd relapse and now here i am every 90 days i'm relapsing for the last four years you know so i mean and have i gotten it i have no idea everybody says something's different this time and they're saying it not me but i mean i even thought about drinking today you know yeah. yesterday the day before that like i've lost a couple of days i've been wanting to drink but i just haven't done it you know it's the holiday season yeah and so. yeah i mean just to just touch on the math a little bit more it's that because so for a lot of different things there's a there's an incentive to make a mathematical model which is just a representation you could think of it like a cartoon like you have you and then i have a representation of you in cartoon form and it's not and the point is it's not perfect um, there are some flaws. It doesn't take into account every detail of how you look, but it is a good estimation that's useful for a lot of applications. So um, I bring up the collecting data on AA thing because one of the things that makes things complicated is that the reality of the world may make it a lot more difficult to model certain things. And in this case, the reality of the world is not simply how many people, let, let's say success rate, a, a simple way of thinking of it is out of the people who joined, how many people are clean and sober? Well, the, there's a bunch of complications on when did they join? Did they relapse a bunch of times? And at, and the biggest one we didn't even talk about, but recovery, is it an end point or is it an ongoing process? So how would you know if someone is still in the ongoing process? You know what? Now, what you could say is they've achieved one year of recovery. And then you could say, that's how we're going to do the success rate. We're going to say, or X amount of years of recovery. We're going to say out of all the people who joined, this percentage achieved X amount of years of recovery um, this far in. And then it would be, but, but then again, you still have to keep collecting the data and it says nothing about relapse. So it's 
you know, maybe that's not very interesting. <laughs> but to me, there is a kind of a statistical issue here. But it comes about when when you do bring up these criticisms and say, hey, wait a minute. How effective is this? How can anybody ever, not only do we not know, but is it even possible to know? And yeah, that would deter <laughs> some people who have like three days or something. If they hear some shit like that, then they're just walking out. And thinking there's no hope for me, and you don't want that either. Well, I think AA's original program had like an eighty percent success rate. Yeah, and that was before people hung out in AA meetings and turned mean, it wait, into. Wait, people a, didn't do that before. No, it was a lot of it would happen at people's houses, and it was like their families involved, and um, you know, it was there was no halfway houses, there was no rehabs, there was hospitals, um, sanitariums. Belladonna treatment, electroshock therapy, um, stuff like that. And, uh, oh, yeah, by the way, I forgot to mention, um, back in the 70s, um, acid was considered a, um, it was a treatment for um, psychological reasons. And um, Bill, Bill Wilson did experiment with acid for a number of years. Um, and therefore, you know, that kind of, for me, I got to, like, I take into account that this isn't, you know, a church. It isn't, it's a place where people that had addiction problems went. So you can't really count that out, but it, I think it's smart to not idolize AA or NA or put people into this category of, um, superhero status, you know, yeah, and kind of bring them back down to real life. Um, that I'm not saying this to defame Bill Wilson or anything, but, um, <laughs> you know, these are things that are common knowledge to AA that, uh, deterred me from wanting to be a member for a long time. Yeah. But that's also one of the beautiful things about those programs, which again, I don't fully, and I always make it clear when I, whenever I speak, but like. It's that the people who are tr who are claiming that they can help you are people who have um, experienced what you've experienced. Yeah, and that's very that's a very powerful message. And I think in a lot of areas, we should have more of that. Um, not just for addiction recovery, but I mean, it's it's a form of mentorship that is it's real, it's genuine. You know. On that note. <laughs> Were you going to sing your recovery song now? No, I'm Actually, we got to. <laughs> I, I asked every statistics student this question, all right? So, what is variance? The measure of the spread of the data? I don't know. I'm going to learn. <clears throat> I forgot. I, I took it a while ago. Yeah, I made some reference back, like, oh, we got a, a statistician in the room, and I didn't let you speak. Um, oh, yeah. It's time for the most important question the in the universe. The most important question Are you in the universe. Sure. Rectangles or ovals? What do you mean? <laughs> ovals. That's right. The Chef of X podcast. <laughs> Thank you for mm, your time. Delicious. Man.